Good to be with you guys in the room. And for those of us joining us online, just a warm welcome and good morning to you as well. It was nice driving down this morning and traffic wasn't too bad. It was really relaxed and made a few phone calls and now I'm here and I get to step in, not filling the shoes of lead pastor Michael, but uh, bringing what I think is a word that God's put on my heart as we explore growing as disciples. You might not recognize me, you know, there's this thing on my face right now. And uh, there's mixed reviews, I've got to be honest. There's very mixed reviews. And I just want to say, like, clearly from the front, you don't need to tell me what you think of my moustache. Kira Lux. Um, and if you can see my moustache online, I don't know whether to say I'm sorry or you're welcome. But I thought we might just start by reading the scriptures this morning. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, and Romans 12, 1 to 2. Let me read. Paul says this. He says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Romans 12, 1-2. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. When I was younger... I was working on a house with my dad. My dad's two things you need to know about this story before I get into it. My dad's a, a carpenter by trade, and he's not a Christian. My dad's an incredible man, but these are two facts that still remain true. Carpenter by trade, not a Christian. We were working on a house together. They'd bought the next lot just across from us in Woody Point, where I grew up. And, and as was typical, he was like doing all the nice craftsmanship artisan jobs, and I was sort of laboring. I was sweeping the rubble. I think he was like using a chisel to excavate some laminate of wood so he could hang a hinge on which he could hang a door. I was laboring. Any laborers in the room? You'll know what I mean. It's like hard work. It's not glorious work. Whereas he could stand back from the door and say, that's nice. Anyway, we, we, were, we were working together and um, which, like, make no mistakes, I have no idea what I'm doing with like power tools. So like, don't get the wrong impression here. That's why I was sweeping. But we were working together and he... He asked me this question, and the question was, Alex, Jesus was a carpenter, wasn't he? And I was like, ooh, you know, my evangelistic spidey senses were tingling. I was like, maybe I could lean in here for a conversation. So I was like, Dad, yeah, he was, at least to the best of our knowledge, he was a carpenter. Why do you ask? And he said, oh, I just want to make sure I'm doing what Jesus would do. And like, I think Jesus had a different idea, right? I'm not saying he nailed it. But what would Jesus do? My dad was, funnily enough, unbeknownst to him, he was asking actually one of the central questions of the Christian life. One of the most important questions that any human can ask. What would Jesus do? Or better put by more modern commentators, what would Jesus do if he were me? Or in other words, discipleship. My dad was asking a fundamental question about discipleship. He, he landed upon the particular task and trade that Jesus gave himself to, which I think is a bit of a missed target. But he was raising the question of, okay, what did Jesus do? And how does that shape and inform my life? 
It's the question of discipleship. And as a church, we've been walking through Vision Month. We've been trying to unpack what it means to have priorities as a church and what those priorities are. And this is a huge question because, let me be blunt, there's a whole host of things that we could do as a church, right? You think about the myriad of people in this room, the multiplicity of gifts that are represented, the huge variety of personalities that are here. There are multiple things we could do as a church, but we want to ask this question. What do we want to, at the end of our time as a church, which, you know, hopefully that doesn't happen, but, you know, at the end of our days as leadership, as people that participate in this community, what do we want to say that we've done? What do we want to be able to do that would make sense of everything else that we do? What's our vision and how do we outwork it? What are our priorities? And we've got four of them. Gathering the lost, gluing in community, growing as disciples, and going on mission. In other words, gather, glue, grow, and go. And today, I want to talk about what it means for us to grow as disciples, to be formed into the image of Jesus. But before I do, I just want to acknowledge two kinds of people in the room. The first kind of person that I want to acknowledge in the room is the person who's not a Christian. Maybe you were brought here today by a friend, and you've got no framework for faith, no sort of traction with this Jesus guy, and you're like, hey, maybe I'll go to church. It's a new year, new me. I'll check out this faith thing. Christians seem to have this purpose and meaning that I'm really attracted to. I'll check out church. And then this guy gets up the front, and he's like, okay, we're not talking about Christianity per se today. We're going to talk about what the church thinks about the church. And you're like, man, I just want to know what the story is. And you're like, will I actually get to hear today what the story of Christianity is. And I, I just want to say to you, actually, today is a perfect moment for you to contemplate the truth of Christianity. Why? Because there's two ways to examine truth claims. The first way is to see whether a claim corresponds to reality. That, in other words, if there's evidence for the claim. And Christians would say that the worldview of Christianity is rational. There's evidence for it. You can believe it. But there's another way to examine a truth claim. And that way is to step into the story and see whether it enlivens the whole of your life. C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, he, he said, I believe in Christianity like I believe that the sun has risen, not simply because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And if we unpack discipleship today, what we're doing is we're saying, here's the life that God invites you to live. And what I want to encourage you is that if you're a non-Christian in the room, you don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you, just try this on. Think about yourself as I unpack the call of discipleship. Think about who you are and who you're becoming as I talk about what it means to follow Jesus. One writer put it like this, that when you follow Jesus, you pay a price to gain the life that's without a price. And if you're not a Christian here today, that's on offer. Christianity is not just a worldview you can examine. It's a way of life that gives life. And it explains the way we experience reality. The second person I want to talk to in the room, just before we get underway, and it's like, actually, how long is Alex going to speak for this morning? Great question. I'll acknowledge it. I'll own it. But the second person is just the seasoned Christian in the room, someone who's been coming to New Life for 5, 10, 20 years. I actually don't know how old New Life is, so if I keep going, you know, I'm at risk. But you're like, man, New Life just sounds like a broken record lately. More people, more like Jesus. If I hear that one more time, I'm going to walk out. Or you're like, man, Mike, I love when Mike says this, but if he says, you know, more important than what you do is, man, I'm just going to pray for him, you know? that We run the risk of being a cracked record. And here's the thing, if we're not careful, this language can become tokenistic. It can become cute. But here's what I want to say. We're not retiring this language. 
Becoming wasn't just a theme for 2021. It's not just language that makes us feel good about ourselves as we carry on our lives. It's actually the foundational call of discipleship. And so we're not putting this language to bed. We're actually doubling down on it. Because who we're becoming is the most important thing about us. And so if you're a seasoned Christian in the room, if you're like, man, I'm just sick of hearing about this, the challenge for you today is, okay, don't just hear. What's God saying to you? And the point of the Christian life is not to hear new ideas every week from the pulpit. It's to be refreshed as you encounter again the ancient way of Jesus, which hasn't changed. And so that's our foundation. Anyway, discipleship. Why discipleship? Someone recently asked me, Alex, why do we want to become like Jesus? Like, what does that even mean? And it's a fairly decent question because Jesus was a first century Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter. And so are we saying that we all need to become first century Middle Eastern Jewish carpenters when we say we want to become like Jesus? It's a really fair question. Why do we want to become more like Jesus? And to answer this question, you actually need to go back to the beginning of the Bible and trace the storyline of humanity to understand the call of discipleship. One of the key ideas that the Bible puts forward around what it means to be human is the idea that humanity is made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It's repeated three other times, two other times in the scriptures in the early chapters of Genesis. Now that word image, it was used in parallel ancient Near Eastern cultures as a term by which to refer to the king. So in ancient Egyptian cultures, ancient Babylonian cultures, they described their king as the one who bears the image of God. And what that meant for the rest of the population in those cultures was that they're slaves, people that are the butlers of the will of the king who represents God. It was a hierarchical system. And into that culture, the biblical story writes something else. It's a bit different. In the beginning, we meet God, and, and God, he's got the authority to speak the world into existence. He's got the authority to define right from wrong, good from evil. And in other words, God is the real king of the cosmos. There's no one like him. There's no one like Yahweh. But then, as God creates, we meet his crowning jewel in creation, and it's humanity. And when we meet humanity, the narrative says that humanity is made in God's image, Hugely different claim to the other stories and myths that were flowing around at the time. Think about it. Whereas other cultures gave this calling to their king, thereby elevating the king's status and demoting the status of everyone else, God gives this calling to every human. It means that all of us have dignity, worth, and value, not just the ruling elite, not just the aristocracy, not just those that sit on the throne. All of us is worth, dignity, and value. But even more than that, all of us are called to be the agents through which God takes the project of creation forward. It's not the ancient kings whose will matters most, it's God's will and how he exercises that through humans for the sake of the world. This is the vision. God says, in my presence, cultivate this earth. Take the ethos of the Garden of Eden and push it across the chaos. In my presence, cultivate this earth. Take the ethos of the Garden of Eden and push it across the chaos. That's the vision of humanity. Each of us have that calling. Now, the clincher is this. God's the ultimate king, right? And he gives humanity the choice as to whether they'll rule under his leadership, whether they'll turn away, use their authority for themselves, or whether they'll fall in line under his definition of good and evil and follow after him. And as the story goes, humanity turns away. 
They reject God and they define good and evil for themselves. And this is the picture that the Bible paints of the human condition. It's a bit of a compliment and critique all at the same time. That on the one hand, we have this incredible potential to do good as humans. Building culture, making art, designing architecture, making the world better. But on the other hand, we have this propensity to do evil. To quote an old wrestling song. Anyone watch WWE growing up? I'm revealing too much there, aren't I? But, you know, there's this song came on as this guy, Eddie McGuire, came out. And he'd just say, like, we lie, we cheat, we steal. That's the human story. We act selfishly. We don't love God, we don't love others, we have war and we gossip, we, we do dodgy business dealings and we sneakily take money from our parents' kitchen table when they're not looking because we think, you know, they don't need that $2 coin. That was my story growing up. John Collins, the guy who sort of sidekicks Tim Mackey in the Bible Project, he said it like this, he says, we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. That's the human story. All of us are in this boat. And so the, pop- the problem the Bible presents is not just that humans are sinful and in need of forgiveness, though that's true and fundamental. It's that the project of creation is in a pickle. And it needs humans who will fulfill their calling to rule wisely over it. Which means in biblical language, here's what we need. We need a priest to deal with our sin. And we need a king to show us how to rule wisely as God's images again. And this is why the story of Jesus is literally mind-blowing. Jesus comes not only to deal with our brokenness, which, like, praise God, he comes to model a new kind of beauty. Jesus comes as the means by which we receive forgiveness and as the model for the new human life. The Bible claims that he's the priest who wipes away our sin and he's the king in whose likeness we're all called to live all at the same time. And so you're, you're sitting here and you're like, why does this matter, Alex? Like this ancient guy, he claimed to be God and he's doing all these things in these sort of particular lens of life. And why does all this matter? It matters because there's two great distortions when it comes to talking about discipleship. The first distortion is to think that Jesus is just a king in whose likeness we're meant to live. And the second distortion is to think that Jesus is just a priest who wiped away our sin. You might call these two distortions on one hand legalism and on the other hand cheap grace. Legalism says that to be a Christian, I need to follow Jesus' example or else God won't accept me. Jesus was loving, I should be loving. Jesus was a servant, I should be a servant. Jesus had a rigorous prayer life. I should have a rigorous prayer life. To be accepted by God, I need to be a perfect disciple. But do you see what's happened here? You've emphasized God's call to discipleship at the expense of God's love and forgiveness. When you see Jesus, you see a king and not a priest. And that's a distortion. It's a mistake. What about cheap grace? Cheap grace does the exact opposite. Cheap grace says... That God has forgiven me and will forgive me for anything I do. So I can do whatever I want and it does not matter. I can ignore the call to take up my cross. I can carry on sinning. I don't need to repent or to grow. I can just settle for mediocre discipleship. Dallas Willard is a philosopher and writer on spiritual formation from the States. And he called this kind of Christianity barcode Christianity. And it's this idea that when you come to follow Jesus, you meet him at a certain point in time. 
He gives you a barcode, which we call forgiveness, and you just hold on to that, and you take it to God as the checkout chick in, in eternity, and you're welcomed into eternity. Otherwise, you, you get converted, and you sit in a holding pattern. Barcode Christianity. No call for discipleship. Do you see what's happened here? You've emphasized God's grace at the expense of God's call to discipleship. In other words, when you see Jesus, you see a priest, but not a king. So here's my question. To which do you gravitate more towards? Which image of Jesus is more comfortable to you? And I just want to open up just 10 seconds of silence. If everyone can close their eyes, just reflect on their life for a second. At home, do the same thing if you'd like to. And let me just read some words over you, just as your eyes are closed. Do you find it easier to say to God, oh, I better fix up my life, otherwise God won't accept me? Do you think of God as performance-based? If that's you, you're not going to enjoy your relationship with God. You're too busy thinking about how you're trying not to tick God off. So what would I say to you? Well, I'd just say, remember that Jesus is your priest. Remember that. Jesus is your high priest who deals with your sin. In the Christian story, God is not someone who says, radically conform your life to Jesus and then I'll accept you. The Christian story says that God radically accepts you. Now follow after Jesus. I accept you as you are. Now come and learn from me how to live again. What would I say to you? I'd just say, take a minute. Breathe. It's okay. Jesus is your priest. 30 more seconds with our eyes closed because maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you find it easy to say, oh, God will forgive me if I do this sin. It's okay, I'll just do it. I don't really need to change. There's that one sin that you keep on performing, that lifestyle that you perpetuate, that habit that you just can't break and you're like, oh, it's all good. It's not a big deal. We do this all the time. I do this all the time. And here's what we've done when we do that. We've lost sight of Jesus as our king. And think about what that means, just briefly. On one level, it's disrespectful. It's exploiting the loving kindness of God. But on another level, it's kind of foolish. It's a bit silly. Because sure, discipleship is costly, but non-discipleship, settling for a mediocre life away from God, not before the face of God, that's way more costly. It'll cost you your peace. It'll cost you your joy. It'll cost you your witness to the world, and ultimately it'll cost you in this life and the next. Discipleship is costly, but non-discipleship is way more costly. You'd be a fool to exploit the grace of God. So what would I say to you? Let's remind you that God is your king and he's your priest. Why don't you open your eyes? My hope would be that these two themes, as we think about the person of Jesus, they would encourage us and challenge us all at the same time. What's the antidote? The antidote is to see God's grace not as cheap, but as costly. It's to see Jesus as our priestly king who gave his life to create new life in us. That's the vision. That in other words, I love putting it like this, Jesus is the answer to the common human problem, and he's the model for the new human life. All at the same time. Jesus accepts us as we are, but he will not leave us as we are. And that growth, that's the call of discipleship. It's a becoming like Jesus, not because we have to, but because we get to. Not to earn God's love, but to live in it more fully and pass it on to the rest of 
the world. That's the story in which we make sense of discipleship. It's the idea that God reconciles us to himself, that we could be agents through which God reconciles the world to himself. That Jesus is the image of God that we now imitate. I read from 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 at the start. Let me just read them again. And with all that background information, just see how, how, how much technicolor there is in this short, sharp passage. Paul says this, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's the journey of discipleship, growing into the image of Jesus. What a vision. Here's my question this morning. Why don't we see it as much in the church? That's not a condemning statement. It's just a statement that should promote reflection. Why don't we see this as much in the church? What holds us back from that vision? Because I think we're experiencing a crisis of discipleship in the church. Across the church. Not just this church. Every church. We're experiencing a crisis of discipleship. Especially in the Western church. We, we have a lot of people identifying as Christians, but not a lot of people who look like Jesus. Gandhi said that, actually, back in the day. A lot of people will say, well, Alex, the reason we're not stepping into this vision is because of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, church had to shut down, we had to go online. And I think some of the best social commentators are saying that the COVID-19 pandemic didn't cause the crisis of discipleship, it just revealed it. It showed us that if we've got not, we don't have this rhythm in place, that we just find it really hard to be self-starter Christians. It's, you know, it's just challenging, isn't it? Other people will say, man, it's just the polarizing politics and the West is falling and, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And, and people will just point to, like, you know, the, the, the loud voices in the media and I just say, man, I, I just don't think that's it, you know? And I'm, I'm, why are we focusing on that so much? The, none of these things caused the crisis of discipleship. They just revealed it. What's going on? Here's what I think. I think the church has gotten really good at making converts, but not disciples. A convert is someone who changes their religion status on the census that comes around every few years, but doesn't change their life. A convert is someone who agrees with a certain list of ideas about God, but doesn't apprentice under Jesus in concrete and rhythmic and practical ways. A convert is someone who feels comfortable with the worldview of Christianity. It's like, yeah, I've got purpose and hope and meaning, and it's true but they feel uncomfortable with the radical way of Jesus. Ultimately, a convert is someone who gives lip service to God, but doesn't give their life to God. Legend has it that um, many of you will be familiar with the, the Crusades um, around the Middle Ages. And legend it might have actually been earlier than that, but legend has it that as the armies of the Crusades went off to war in the name of Jesus, which, you know, get your mind around that for a second went off to war in the name of Jesus. They got baptized. And as they got baptized, they'd hold their swords above their heads, you know, into the waters of baptism, dying to my old life, rising to the new. But what doesn't get baptized? The sword. And it's as if the crusaders and the armies of the crusades, they were saying to God, God, you can have every part of my life except my honor and my glory, my quest for dominion. And that's a story about the crusaders. But we do the same in the modern world. All of us have something in our lives that we hold on to, that we don't give over to God, because we want to say to God, God, you can have every part of my life, but not this one thing. All of us have something. For some of us, you might say, God, you can have my life, except that part of me that I most want to keep, the part of me that I think is most fundamental to me. 
Some of us say to God that, you know, you can have access to my religion status, but you can't have access to my addictions or my habits or my lifestyle. Some of us say to God, you can have access to my friend's issues, but if you challenge me on my issues, my desires, my things that I feel proclivities towards, no, no, God, you can't. You know, that, that's, that's me, that's who I am. Some people say to God, God, you can have access to my beliefs about the world, but you can't have access to my fundamental goals in life. You know, one of the things, let me just speak to the millennials and the Gen Z in the room. The Aussie dream says that if you don't own a home by the time you're 30 and have your life set up, you're going to fail. That's a fundamental goal that God might not want to do away with, but he wants to critique in such a way that you shouldn't feel anxiety about the housing market right now. You shouldn't be freaking out. It's going to be okay, right? What are the fundamental goals we have in life and how does culture give us those goals and how do we use God to help us get there? What, what, do I, what would I say? I'd say you're letting some parts of you be baptised by God and refined by his love, but not all parts of you. We all do this. All of us hold something back from God. In some way, we settle. We settle for being converts and not disciples. And here's what I want to say. Here's what New Life wants to say. Not us. It's not going to be our story, church. We're not going to settle for conversion. We're going to plummet the depths of discipleship. We're not in the convert-making business. We're in the disciple-making business. We're not here to play church. We're here to follow Jesus. Last year, we were gathering as a leadership team in the offices just by the way, and we were asking, you know, we were reflecting on the fact that so many churches, they're known for so many different things, you know, in, in a beautiful way, in a way that we can celebrate. You know, there's one church, and you'd know the name of them. They put out, like, worship albums every second week, and it's like, you know, they're the worship church. And other churches, maybe down the street, they're the charismatic church, and God rocks up in a powerful way in their services, and we celebrate that, but here's what they're known for. They're the charismatic church. And we're in a meeting, and Pastor Michael, he, he leant in, and he's just like, guys, wouldn't it be awesome if when people met someone who came to New Life, they said, oh, that's the discipleship-making church. Wouldn't it be awesome if when someone met us and the first impression they got was, hey, they're a fully-fledged, embodied disciple of Jesus. Wouldn't it be awesome if the thing for which we were known was not like the comfort of our seats, not the sort of, you know, um, the, the beauty of our proficiency in a service, not the myriad of people that make up our congregation. What if the thing for which we were known was that we are disciples? Now, I'm speaking this out, but this should get us pumped. This is the fundamental call of the Christian life. This is not an optional extra. This is not something that we tack on. This is not for the elite Christian. This is fundamental to everyone in the room. What if we were known as a church that were disciples, fully-fledged disciples of Jesus, making other disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the good of the world? What if we were known for that? What if that was people's first impression? What if that overflowed from our lives, not in the way that was forced, but in a way that was natural? What would that say? What would that do? What if we were known for this? Now, there's two ways we can do this, one more general and one more specific that we want to announce today. And to announce the more specific one, we've actually got a little video from Pastor Mike again. And we're announcing something that we're going to call Catalyst. And to unpack Catalyst, can I just ask you to turn to the screens for four minutes and we'll hear from Pastor Michael. Who are you becoming? 
how are you becoming? What is shaping you every day? We're in a moment of pronounced cultural upheaval. What we may fail to realize as the church is that like never before, the society around us is shaping and forming the emerging leaders of tomorrow. This is done through unprecedented digital consumption, through cultural shifts and instability in what we believe and how we think and function as a society. The church in the West is on the decline and cultural Christianity is no longer a thing of the present, but that of the past. But this is not the first time the church has been in a moment like this. No, this has happened before in history. In World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the theologian, was disillusioned with how the church was giving way and bowing to the reign of the Third Reich and the Nazi party. And so he started a countercultural movement of forming the emerging leaders of tomorrow in a place called Finkenwald, where emerging leaders could come, be formed and shaped in the ways of Jesus Christ to become more like Jesus. When Dietrich's friends came along and saw the strict regiment with which he trained and formed these young leaders, they said to him, this is too much, this is too hard. Why are you doing it like this? And Dietrich led them to the top of the hill and they looked down on what was a training camp for the Hitler Youth, where young men and women were trained up in the worldview of the Third Reich. And he said this to them, what we are doing as the church must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. Until the good of our formation is stronger than the evil of the formation of the worldview of the Nazi party, they will win. This must be stronger than that. Bonhoeffer understood something important that if the church does not take formation seriously, then we will be formed by the loudest voice in our world. And for us to see emerging leaders to become more like Jesus, the formation of the church must be stronger than the formation of the world. But this will not happen by accident. We are passionate in your life about raising the leaders of tomorrow by taking seriously their discipleship today. The church should be involved in the raising of emerging leaders for both the ministry and the marketplace. For the planting and thriving of the future of the church and new churches needs both ministry and marketplace leaders to be developed and formed. And this is what Catalyst seeks to do. Catalyst, in short, is a year of discipleship where a cohort of emerging leaders dedicate time to be formed in the way of Christ. Ultimately, Catalyst will have three phases of experiential formation. Knowing God, being a disciple, and leading with wisdom and courage. Asking the question pretty much of how does God form our head, our heart, and our head. We believe that from Catalyst will come the future church planters, future prime ministers, future lawyers, leaders, builders, doctors, mothers and fathers, and the emerging leaders of tomorrow. It's a ministry that will be filled with retreats, with community, with experiential learning and a deepening of faith and intimacy in the following of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're interested in knowing how God wants to form your leadership and influence to bless the world of tomorrow and glorify Him, if you're interested in taking your formation seriously, if you're an emerging leader, then Catalyst is for you. We'd love to see you at our first interest night. You can sign up at church.nu slash catalyst. Hope to see you there. When I was chatting with Mike on the phone earlier this week, he just said, man, I wish I could be there on Sunday. Because this is his heart. 
and as someone who both works alongside Michael as a colleague and a friend, but also as someone who sits under Michael's leadership and is blessed by his leadership, I just want to say it's actually such a privilege to have a lead minister who would think, man, the thing I want to inculcate in my people, the thing that I want to do, the thing I want to be my legacy, I want to make disciples. Just think about that for a moment. This is his heart. This is our heart. And we want this to be the heart of our church because we know ultimately it's the heart of God. He wants to create a people who are disciples who make disciples. That's what he wants to do. And and whereas everything we do as a church is geared towards that, Catalyst is just a way that we're intentionally forming our first formal stage of leadership and discipleship formation. So what about the rest of us? Where do we start? I just want to say it starts with us. The difference between a reality and a vision is whether the people of God use their lives to embody it. And so can I just invite you to stand? I've got one more scripture I want to read over us. The journey of discipleship, it's actually super simple. We make it complex because it involves us. We bring the complexity because we hold on to parts of ourselves that we don't want to let come under the loving gaze of God. But it's simple. The Bible just simply says repentance and faith. A turning away from our old life and a turning to the new life that Jesus modeled and by his spirit empowers. Faith is embodied everyday trust before the face of God. Some other words that I found really helpful to summarize the journey of discipleship is this. Surrender and participation. You need to surrender your earthly projects, your plans, your goals. Not because all of them are evil, but if you put them in the place of God, they'll just hurt you. And you need to participate in the life and the lifestyle of Jesus. Earlier we read Romans 12, 1 to 2, and I just want to read it over us in the message version from Eugene Peterson because it gives us a vision of what we should walk out here aiming to do. He says this, So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize that He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. And so you want to know what I'm excited for, church? I'm excited to grow as disciples. As I was preparing this week, God put a song on my heart and I asked Tanya and the team to lead us in it. And it captures some of the words that Peterson translates from Romans 12, 1 to 2. And it's that the journey of repentance and faith, surrender and participation, discipleship and growing into the image of Jesus, that journey, it's done from the inside out. We're not putting a face on. We're not manufacturing change. We're surrendering to God. And so the team's going to lead us. And can I invite you, let this song be a prayer. Let it be a catalytic moment in the life of your discipleship. And invite God by His Spirit to consume you from the inside out. That you might be changed into His image. For the good of you, the sake of the world, and the glory of God.
of God. Let's sing.